This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. We've got you now for an hour of science. In the studio with me is Dr. Linden. Good morning, madam. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm good. Good to see you. You too. You must be loving this weather, even oh, though you're a climatologist. Who is not loving this weather today? It's beautiful. <laughs> and Dr. Ray, good morning, sir. Good morning, Dr. Shane. And we have Liv doing our Twitter feed. Yep, yep. She speaks. She's real. Um, if you aren't following us on Twitter, you should be. Apparently, it's an important thing, this social media. I don't know much about that. Um, we have a big show for you today. We have two uh, guests, which I found on Twitter over the last few days. This is what happens when Dr. Shane is lazy during the week and doesn't organize guests early on and then freaks out on Thursday and, you know, have to call on the Twitter people to help me, which uh, they do. They're fantastic. But we've got some news up first. Uh, Dr. Linden, do you want to start us off? Yeah, of course. So there were two uh, science news pieces that sparked my interest this week, and they're actually both good news stories. I know I generally bring in the dark clouds a bit of doom of and gloom, but both of these stories are, yep. are good news stories. One was about the power of old technology to do good, and mm-hmm. one was about the power of new technology to hopefully do good. So the first one was published in Nature Human Behaviour, which is a pretty new journal in the Nature Stable. I think it's only been around for a year or so, about getting uh, the elderly to get their flu vaccines. Mm-hmm. This study involved almost a quarter of a million Americans over 65, and it was about sending a letter the power of sending a simple letter. Uh, These researchers sent different types of letters. Some were just like a reminder to get the flu vaccine with a picture of the Surgeon General, and others were uh, more active ones with a note at the bottom with a box tick where you can say, yes, I'm going to get my flu vaccine on this date, or no, I'm not going to get it, even though I know that I probably should. And they found that it didn't matter what kind of letter that was sent, as long as you sent a letter, as long as someone received a letter, uh, they were significantly more likely to go and get the flu vaccine. I mean, when I first saw this study, I was like, well, that's probably a bit Captain Obvious, but uh, I suppose as everything moves more and more onto email and online, mm. it's good to have some empirical evidence to show that for some sections of the community, snail mail is still yeah, important. Something tangible in your hands. Yeah. Yeah, well, and actually the flu vaccine's a big deal. You know, last year, um, one of the strains wasn't quite in it, but it's been really, it's back to its normal effectiveness this year. That This time of year, last year, they had over 200,000 reported flu cases in Australia. Now they had 40,000. Mm. So yeah. much more effective vaccine this mm-hmm. year. Yeah, I was very disturbed to find that the vaccine that I got was, because I go and get it very early, and apparently I think it only had three out of the four strains in it, so I'm, I'm at risk. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, but we're, we're through the winter. Yeah, we're through that. That's what I figured, you know. Yeah. What's the chance? It's only 60% of people over 65 in the U.S. get the flu vaccine. Wow. That's pretty low. That's for a high-risk group. Yeah, that's what, yeah. that's what I thought. Anyway, so the other study has absolutely nothing to do with this. It was about corn. I'm just looking through news that I thought was interesting, and this one <laughs> was about um, produce uh, boosting the productivity of corn. So corn is, you know, a major food source. We actually grow more corn in Australia than wheat and uh, f- wheat and rice and it, geographically we grow it over a larger area but it doesn't produce as much food and these guys this is a study done by researchers in the u.s and researchers at anu at the center of excellence for translational photosynthesis i like that which yeah mm. that's pretty that's translational, translational photosynthesis, photosynthesis. And the, the, the photosynthesis is going to transform into something well maybe he's just going to do it in a few languages okay yeah. oh, oh. <laughs> oh that's good yeah 
Anyway, so these guys uh, were able to uh, boost the enzyme that helps photosynthesis Rubisco, which I've just done quite a speed course on what photosynthesis and Rubisco is. Look at this climate scientist learning. Uh, Rubisco was boosted by 15%, by 30% in these corn plants, and they were able to boost the productivity and the growth of the corn by 15%, mm. which is actually, like, that's really exciting. It's exciting on a few levels, obviously, because corn is a major food source. It's also a bit more resilient than some other food sources when it comes to climate changes, changes in temperature and rainfall. You can grow it in a hotter or drier climate. And corn is a part of the group of plants that doesn't actually respond so well to an increase in CO2. So if we can boost the productivity of the plants by other ways, by using these new technologies, then that can uh, help mm. us with food production in the future. So yeah, especially given, given the tendency for growers to displace one crop for another that has higher proficiency in mm-hmm. terms of production. And so if corn's not one that's doing better, you know, well, we'll grow wheat. Yeah. Know, so you don't want that sort of thing happening. You want the variety there. No, yeah. that's right. How, how did they do the enzyme enhancement? Was that crossbreeding or genetic um, manipulation? They... Um, Look, a lot of the technical terms were technical. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not a botanist, so keep going. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but they, they isolated the Rubisco kind of pathways and were able to to, to boost the, hmm. the way that it was produced in hmm. the plant, from what oh, I understand. Yeah, so they've done it in kind of cabinet trials, they've done it in greenhouses, and the next step is to take it out to field trials to see how it goes. Yeah. Very oh, interesting. That's interesting. I assume corn is like most vegetables and most grain crops in that the one we're eating now is not actually the strain of corn we were eating 20 years ago. Oh, or yeah, yeah. And yeah. 2,000 years ago, mm. it was poisonous. Well, well, well yeah, but yeah. I mean, but they crossbreed in um, mm. different strains of wheat, of rice, of corn, and, and then roll them out because eventually insects break down the, yeah. the natural resistances in the plant and they have to... Go to a slightly different strain. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Dr. Ray, what do you got? Uh, I have a, a story about teeth and kangaroos. Cool. Which is, a, and, and the reason why I, 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 I grabbed the story was because it was about archaeological, archaeologically tracking teeth. And I went, oh, we've actually had people on, on the radio, on the recently. show recently. Yeah. Um, not, not this researcher from Flinders University, but people that actually learn what well, they were learning about humans more than, than animals and looking at the, their fossilized teeth. But this is looking at kangaroos and fossilized teeth and particularly how the modern day kangaroos appearance tracked with how evolution was linked to climate change. So when things began, the world was a little bit wetter. And as climates dried out, this was in the Mycenaean, I think, 14 to 15 million years ago, climate started to dry out and become a little bit more arid. And particularly, Australia went to that as well. And as the climate dries, the vegetation changes. And so in North America and Europe, when that happens, they see the type of animal grazing changes as well. And one great way to track that in the fossil record and and, and even in living animals, is the crown of the tooth, the whole length of the tooth, because right. it, all the other tooth attributes track for that as well. So if you are a grazer in an arid climate and eating gritty vegetables and grasslands, the tooth tends to be longer. Mm-hmm. If you're eating leaves and things that are easier in wetter climates, the tooth tends to be shorter. And so what we're looking for, whether it might be our, our beloved little marsupials or, or other mammals in, in Europe is that you see this evolution going from shorter teeth to longer ones. And in Europe and North America, this happened 14, 15 million years ago. But in Australia, modern kangaroos, that evolution came in three, four million years ago. 
Hmm. And so we took a different evolutionary path down here because when we started to go a little bit more arid and 14 million years ago, we ended up with vegetation that, you know, still leaves and stuff. Instead of seeing animals evolve their teeth, kangaroos just got bigger. Yeah. And, and, and so the, I'm going to say this wrong, Suthanurines? Okay. Giant kangaroos. The Sounds ones that. Technical. 240, yeah, it was technical. <laughs> That's your line for everything today. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't even get a good joke on photosynthesis. Um, anyway, uh, so these were like 240 kilo kangaroo-like marsupials, they, except they yeah. strode instead of hopped. Right. And, and so they were big enough that they would eat vegetation intermittently and could still get those things. But what happened was is that kangaroos evolved when, as the grasslands really took over in that area. And um, and, and, and actually, I'm like, how did they track this? I mean, aside from looking at the teeth, they had to figure out where the climate became drier, so they used oxygen isotope tracking. They had to figure out the spread of grasslands, so they looked at the pollen fossil record and carbon dating, and they had to actually correlate grit based on sea cores of nearby areas. And so they used all these three characteristics to kind of track this, and it showed how evolution is not the same tape or movie that you would play on different continents, that it does mm. vary. Uh, and the grit thing, like grit, like uh, silica grasses, our grasslands are kind of gritty, and so you yeah. need longer teeth so you don't wear down. Yeah. That also explains something. In South America, they saw an evolution of an animal where um, it was responding to grit, but it wasn't climate change. It was this region in South America was near a volcano for a very long oh, time. Wow. Yeah, so the ash made all their the gritty. vegetation gritty. So it evolved animals that had longer teeth. Huh. So I just cool find stuff. tooth yeah. archaeology fascinating. Were there like 50 co-authors on this paper? Because you would have <laughs> to have areas of so many different no, types of actually, expertise. It's, it's really surprising. It was only two. It was a, a researcher from Flinders and a, um, a biodiversity center in the Netherlands. I was really impressed. It was two okay. people before work. So they, a lot of data to crunch through. Wow. Mm, very cool. Yeah. Well, uh, every now and then, then long-time listeners of this program will, will realize that um, you have a fair fairly broad scientific knowledge so when i hear a new term i get excited and the last time i got this this excited was because we just had technical terms just yeah, now no, so I many technical but you know terms when i hear change. one that i really haven't heard like when i heard the term pyroclastic flows a few years back <laughs> i just went right off like i was just reading everything i could about pyroclastic flows for a while and and this morning or last night i was i was reading up some new news and i heard this term turbidity currents and i was like whoa what are turbidity currents and all of a sudden <laughs> i got excited um yeah, this is just me. Yeah, yeah, because turbidity stuff. not not a new word used in to describe water treatment all the time. Yeah, yeah, but currents are the same. But you put them together, turbidity currents. All of a sudden, I don't know what you're talking about. Cloudy currents. No. So here's the interesting thing. Now, I, I looked up some definitions of this, and there's a whole lot. They just sound really weird. So I'm going to just describe these as avalanches that occur underwater. Okay. So if you think of a sloping area of the seabed. And due to an earthquake or whatever else, a whole lot of sediment at the top of that starts sliding down that hill and you get this thing called the turbidity current. And it's, you know, these, these are very, very problematic. We need to know where these are going to occur because if you think of transatlantic cables and pipelines, et cetera, et cetera, you get one of these turbidity currents that are big enough, it'll wipe these things out. It'll destroy our communication systems and so forth. So being able to predict how they work and, and what, what they're like in reality, what is actually happening is very, very important. And apparently they were first, you know, this is why I don't feel so bad that they didn't know about it because they've only known about these things since 1929. 
So I'm not that far behind. Um, almost a hundred years. But no, anyway. quite a hundred, right? <laughs> not quite a hundred. If it was a hundred, I'd feel yeah. bad, right? I mean, that's the, the cutoff. So, but it, it's interesting because some work has been done by, and this is a spectacular collaboration. It is between, I'm going to read out all these organizations because there's a, quite a few of them. Um, it's an 18 month study that's been going on between the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, the U.S. Geological Survey, the University of Hull, the National Oceanographic Center, the University of Southampton, the University of Durham, and the Ocean University of China have all got together to look at the um, the Monterey Trench, and they've been basically monitoring these turbidity currents in that region by putting, I think, in 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 effect, something um, like fifty. Um, or so sensors, all different types of instruments, so not, not the one type of instrument. So if you can imagine this flow of material flowing across the seafloor, um, there's some things where you might want sensors to flow with it so you can track its speed, and there's other things where you would want the sensor to stay still, so you might put a heavier heavier instrument there and the combination of all these together are used to track some of these these flows and some of these flows can go on for like 50 kilometers like they're not little you know they're like big avalanches under underwater they're quite incredible and so what they've been looking at is how these flows actually work and and you know specifically what's interesting about them that we didn't know before one of the things they found which i thought was fascinating is you have ocean currents occurring obviously around these things so normal water currents these flows tend to travel faster than the ocean currents around them, which is a little surprising. That's not something that people thought was was the case. But there is a more important piece of information that they've just come out with that has never been thought of or, or um, it's sort of, some people thought it might be the case, but it's never been shown before. And that is that, so imagine where you have an avalanche of snow coming down the mountain. The snow passes over the mountain and, and it moves forward. What if I was to tell you that the mountain moved as well? You'd think, no, hang on, that's the dirt's not moving, it's just, just the snow. Well, in the case of these turbidity currents, the ocean floor is actually being moved as well. And they're found down to a depth of a couple of metres, the actual sediment under, you know, the actual ocean floor part is moving in addition to the stuff on top of it. In the same direction? In the same direction. So oh. the, it's, Does that it's, mean the, like the water, flow effect, water flow effectively fluidizes the soil? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right, right? Oh. So you, you've got a scenario where the, and, and there's, there's a huge amount of mass here. So you can imagine, you know, there's high pressures, high mass, and the whole thing starts to move. And so if you think about that in terms of, you know, telecommunication cables sitting on the ocean floor bed, and that floor bed starting to move in addition to what's on top of the cable, this is one of the explanations why they can cause so much damage. So this was never seen before, and if we go back to what I said earlier about the different types of instruments, so you've got the ones that flow with the the actual the, the material because they're the light instruments, but then you've got these heavy ones. They're not supposed to move. Problem is, they were moving. <laughs> like, they were moving because the ocean floor they were sitting on was moving. So it's a really interesting new understanding of how these flows, these turbidity current flows work, because previously no one really understood how, how much, how much was going on. And now that, now that they've got a good idea of this, it's completely different. So anyway, turbidity wow. currents. Technical. It's, it's my new technical, uh, exciting, uh, <laughs> thing for the week so you know this only happens to me about once every three years but when it when it happens i get very excited folks we're going to take a break for some music and we will be back in a moment with our first guest and uh that's we're going to continue the theme of underwater stuff which is uh we have a really cool topic that we're going to be chatting about you're listening to triple arts i'm standing go three triple
are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr Shane. In the studio of RRR right now, we have Matt Carter. He's a PhD student in the Maritime Archaeologist. I don't think we've had a Maritime Archaeologist on the show before. Maybe. Uh, in the Department of Archaeology and History at La Trobe University. Matt, welcome to the studio. Good morning. Now, it's great to... A Maritime Archaeologist. Is this an archaeologist that spends all their time underwater? Oh, as much time as possible. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, you, I mean, I just want to jump straight into your project because I think it's um, it's an incredible scenario with regards to how you've gone about interacting with a, a variety of teams, actually, on this particular uh, World War relic that's been at the bottom of the sea um, at a, in a region where people can't get to it for a period. So, first of all, can you tell us about the object that, that's of interest and when it was found, uh, you know, how long it was missing, etc., and why there's so much interest in that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, 1942, the mm-hmm. Japanese attacked Sydney Harbour, yep. <clears throat> and they launched three of these uh, Japanese midget submarines. So, these submarines, they're 26 metres long, mm-hmm. uh, 1.8 metres wide. Two of them were destroyed in the attack and one of them escaped the harbour and disappeared. Hmm. No one knew where it was for 64 years. Right. It was this, this massive mystery. Yeah. And it was finally found in 2006 uh, in 56 metres of water. Right. Uh, for those of you who don't know, 56 metres is really quite deep. Yeah, it's three times the depth of Port Phillip Bay, right? Because that's about 20 metres of its deepest point, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And so um, traditionally, maritime archaeologists in Australia, we only work to 30 metres. Uh, that's based on some legislation and things like that. Hmm. And this is almost twice that depth, so it added some challenges. Okay. How was it found then? So um, there was some divers called the No Frills Dive Club. They were out looking around and they saw a, a strange shape on a fish finder went down and lo and behold you've got this <laughs> Japanese midget submarine and been missing for so long. Yeah, I find it interesting, you know, if we think of even just these sorts of things on land and, and, and there's a lot of discoveries that have happened throughout Europe over the years, just the sheer amount of material that ends up on top of things it, it seems to me as though you know, there'd be so much junk on top of it on the ocean floor after so many years that it'd be almost embedded, is that the case? Or is it just sitting out there on the floor like yeah, well, um, that's the interesting thing, I guess, the, the comparison between maritime archaeology and, and land-based yeah. terrestrial archaeology. Uh, on land, we get these layers just built up and built up over time. Yeah. Um, we're underwater. It's usually a, a one context. It's usually just the shipwreck sitting by itself. Right. And this is exactly what the midget submarine is. It's sitting on the bottom with nothing around it, just absolutely enveloped in fish. Yeah. It's absolutely beautiful. Wow. Now, in terms of the, you said about 30, 31 metres is about as low as you'll go. Why is that? Um, it's partly to do with um, the difficulties of diving deeper than 30 metres. You need to start introducing um, mixed gas. So instead right. of breathing air, you're breathing um, trimix. So you have helium okay. as well uh, to take out the nitrogen narcosis. Yep. Um, and it just gets more challenging. Yeah. Okay. Now you you've been working on a way to get to it. So to get to this particular um, submarine and, and, and investigate it. How, how's how's that uh, happened? What what do, we, what do we have to do? So um, for a very for the very start is this uh, site. It's actually a, a grave. So it has the two mm. submariners still on board. So oh, right. it's incredibly sensitive. Mm. There's a restricted entry zone around it. So you can't go within 500 meters of the site without special permission from the Commonwealth Government. Mm. So we had to go through this um, uh, just a way of getting permission with the um, Division of Heritage in New South Wales. So that was at the the paperwork level. Moving to the more practical level, um, we used some dive gear called uh, closed-circuit rebreathers. Now, your traditional scuba, uh, you breathe in, you breathe out, the bubbles 
escape. Right. Yep. With a rebreather, the bubbles are actually trapped within a loop and it recycles that gas, which means you can stay down for far longer mm. and you've got this massive redundancy of, of gas, of this helium um, oxygen mix. Mm. And that allows us to go deeper and stay down longer than that traditional so, scuba. So can, can I just ask, is that because our bodies take so little of what we breathe in? Is that, is that the reason why that works? Absolutely. So we're incredibly inefficient. Inefficient, yeah. How much, I, I've always wondered that. How much, so when I take a breath in, how much of the breath do I actually absorb as a percentage? Is it, uh, it's a very small amount. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it's, yeah it's sort of sub 10%, isn't it? So I, I believe it's very, so. Yeah, small yeah. Yeah. Dr. Shane, this is why CPR works and mouth, yeah, mouth yeah, resuscitation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Even what we're breathing out, if you're not breathing, is still yeah. helpful. No, it's, uh, I find that fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And as you say, normally those bubbles just... You know, That's right. Those wasted. bubbles are good. We should use those bubbles, yeah. Um, yeah. Now, so so this is different different dive gear specifically used. And so, so what does that mean in terms of the... Like investigation of the sub, like who's is it the same people doing it or so? Um, because it's it's so deep that the the heritage division they can't dive it themselves, but mm-hmm. they have had uh, commercial divers and navy divers go down and work on the sub, and they use a uh, surface supply, so they have the big helmets with hoses going right to the surface. Oh yeah, yep. And that's um it's one way of doing it, but you're quite restricted in that kind of um mm. equipment, and it's quite expensive. So we offered them this alternative: we'd go down with these um, these rebreathers and yep. underwater scooters, and um, essentially. We'd be free swimming, moving around, and we could offer them this uh, 3D modelling, which the um, the Navy and the commercial divers weren't really offering. Yeah, we're so going to talk about we'll the modelling. We'll get to the modelling yeah. in a second. Yeah, Just an cool. observation. Um, for many forms of research, I assume one does not quite need the physical fitness that one might for this activity. Like, to, to work at a lab bench, nobody goes, wow... Uh, can you hold your breath for a minute and are you, you know, like what's your, what's, what's your body mass index and, and, and things like that? But I'm thinking you're going to have to be pretty physically fit to do things like this. This sounds like it has an element of risk to it that perhaps me working with a beaker in a lab doesn't. Uh, potentially. And we overcome that risk through, uh, really quite intensive training. You do a lot of training before you get anywhere near this kind of level of diving. Mm. Um, but the idea is to, um, yeah, train hard, dive easy. So if right. you're if you're yeah. stressed and you're um, you're working under, hard underwater, you're doing something wrong, basically. Yeah. So you don't want to put yourself in that position. Now, in terms of the wreck itself, I mean, one of the things I'm really curious about is how something that's been in you know the seawater is a hostile environment, but this this thing it's not like a plane that crashed into the water. This thing was designed to be in the water. So what what sort of condition is it in after seventy odd years? I mean, is it is it intact? Yeah, it's it's almost. Almost completely intact. So oh. you can see, for uh, someone who's never seen a submarine underwater, it's it looks like a submarine. It's right. got the, um, the yep. conning tower sticking yep. up and a long tube shape. It has actually here been hit by trawling nets a couple of times. Okay. So yep. there are parts of it actually being torn off it. And also what we found is um, just behind the conning tower, these submarines were absolutely amazing, completely battery-powered. Right. So 1942, yeah, yeah. this is just so high-tech. Yeah, not even diesel. No, yeah, just completely battery. Yeah. But what we found is the um, as the submarines corroded, the batteries have actually um, increased that corrosion in certain right. areas. So lots of the panelling is actually been eaten away around that um, acid which has escaped from those batteries. Yeah, and, and the, the, the huge question for me here is... Are we able to determine why it actually didn't, you know, make it back to, mm. to well, wherever it came from? That's yeah. the really exciting question. The really difficult thing is because we can't actually tell. Wow. So yeah. essentially the way we think is that 
the submarine went into the harbour, carried out its, uh, its attack, and then mm. escaped. And by the time it escaped, the batteries would have been running pretty low. Yeah, so yeah. either they ran out of batteries completely, or the batteries were kind of overwhelmed and were spewing out some sort of toxic it, gas. Yeah, and, and I suppose, I mean, just, you know, you have to be gentle with me here and realise that most of my knowledge of this comes from the television show The Octonauts. So, um, yeah, that's about where I'm at. But I assume without the without battery power, a submarine can't surface. So is, is that right? Well, it could have surfaced because they had these ballast tanks which yeah. could fill with water um, and then you empty the water and... Right, and it would, would, would... But then the thing, this is a top-secret weapon as well. If they're, so they're, if they're floating yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. on the surface, so they may have sunk it purposely. Yeah, fair enough. So you mentioned 3D modelling was something you guys offered that professional divers and former Navy divers didn't. So what is that? Well, um, essentially... They can do it, but we were the ones who offered it first. <laughs> but essentially, well, how we do it now is um, we use a technique called structure um, from motion, and we take thousands of photographs of the of the site, and then run it through some three D modeling software uh, called Agisoft PhotoScan, and out comes a sub centimeter detailed map of the site. It's wow. it's unbelievable. Yeah. And just to clarify, by we you mean Latrobe University, or is this another organisation that you're a part uh, of? This is my dive team. Yeah. Okay. So this kind of work you just can't do by yourselves and um in terms of maritime archaeology i'm one of the only maritime archaeologists in uh australasia who has these diving qualifications so i need to work with outside groups so i've got a fantastic team of other technical divers um underwater video underwater photo mm. and we work together and these guys are just um you know their day jobs have nothing to do with archaeology but they're phenomenal, right. yeah. phenomenal divers yeah and we work as a team, so that's why I use we because I couldn't have done this by myself at all. And Matt, when it, when it comes to the three D modelling, and as you said, you know, centimeters sort of precision out of this thing. Have you gotten to the point? No, I, I'm, I'm not sure you could ever get to this point, but but maybe you're pretty close. Where you no longer need to dive the site because of the data you've collected in the three D model, and you can pretty much do most of the exploration in that that sort of virtual space? Yeah, well, that's, that's part of the whole reason why we did the project was to be able to capture it exactly how it was when we, when mm. we were diving on it and provide that to um, Heritage New South Wales so they can manage the site and also bring it to the general public because so few people are ever going to dive this site. Yeah, of course. So we can bring it up and reconstruct it through virtual reality, through 3D printing, all these kind of things. We can introduce people who never, you know, they don't have to get your feet wet. We can yeah. show you exactly what this looks like. Yeah, yeah. So... I describe myself as a cocktail diver, where I go diving in, <laughs> in places cocktails. where I can also drink a cocktail. <laughs> Warm water, clear water, those kinds of things. I've been out to Fort Phillip Bay once, but you can have yeah. a cocktail <laughs> down in Dramana. Um, <laughs> but I can imagine that this dive site, it doesn't look like a David Attenborough documentary. Like what can... Taking the photos down there, 60 metres, can you paint us a picture of what it looks like? Is it... How dark is it? How... Slimy is it, you know, <laughs> yep. what it look like? Well, absolutely. Because it's a, um, a restricted zone, it means people can't actually go out and fish it. So it's turned into mm. an artificial reef and there are just thousands of fish all over, like absolutely blanketed in fish. But we're not talking like Nemo. Uh, every, no, not quite Nemo, but there's like <laughs> wobby gongs and various things. I'm not a fish person, so I, I, I couldn't <laughs> yeah, yeah. tell you the names. But, um, essentially it's just blanketed. So that's the first thing you see. You're, you're coming down it's, and it is quite dark. But what we do, we have, um, all sorts of lights and redundant lights and everything like that so we can see. You're coming down and it just starts coming out of the kind of the darkness and all you see is this blanket of fish. And then we were trying to 3D model it. We're taking photos of, of the structure of the wreck itself. All the fish are in the way. So you're like, <laughs> get out of here, yeah. damn fish. <laughs> 
So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds incredible. Is there a any sort of interest or intent on bringing the sub back to the surface and repatriating the 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 two bodies that are actually in it? Is that something that would happen now? I mean, presumably these things will continue to decay over time in such a hostile environment. You know, what's the thinking there? Yeah. So I guess there's two parts to that. Um, the Japanese uh, embassy, Japanese government, have been involved with this right yep. from day yeah, one when it was found. And uh, Heritage New South Wales, they've been, you know, incredibly, uh, I guess, conscientious of always communicating that. And it's a very difficult position because it's a Japanese submarine that was attacking Australia. So sure. there yep. is political sensitivities around that. But the um, the ongoing thoughts are that we'll leave it where it is. Um, overseas, they have brought up. Uh, ships, uh, mm. various things like this, and the cost of conservation alone runs into the multi, multi, multi million dollars. So mm. it's not something that's looked at at this stage. But then also the fact is that um, it will corrode over time. So part of our our survey showed exactly what the condition of the site is in now, yep. and they know that the the bodies of the two um, submarines are in the submarine, but they're not exposed to the elements at this stage. Right. So we can say that, and hopefully we'll go back in you know a few months and be able to continue this yeah, kind of baseline. Yeah. So. That's fascinating. Yeah, and and just I mean, finally, are there other similar sites around Australia that you you guys are interested in? In the near future, I mean, it sounds like, you know, with this rebreather technology and so forth, there's some capability there to do a lot more, and, and especially with this 3D imaging, I mean, the ability to actually map these sites and, as you say, allow people to really explore them when there's no way they could dive these sites. Are there other, other sites of interest? Absolutely. Um, and that's the great thing about combining uh, the rebreathers and 3D modelling is we can record these wrecks mm. faster than ever ever before. And there's some really uh, emerging issues up in the Pacific at the moment around World War II shipwrecks which are leaking oil. Mm, so right, we yeah. intend to put together a, um, a project to go up there and start mapping these wrecks and actually bringing this to people's attention before it's too late and we're finding these beautiful Pacific islands just you know, knee-deep in oil. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it occurs to me that, you know, this 3D technology also in terms of just looking at some of the structure of the seafloor and, you know, would also be incredibly useful to people who are monitoring, you know, especially around um, tectonic plate movements and, and so forth. There's some amazing structures that are continually changing and the, the sort of detail that you're getting uh, presumably be valuable there as well. So, Absolutely. Yeah. The resolu- resolution is just unbelievable yeah. it, because it's it's a relatively um, intensive kind of way of collecting that data. So normally you'd be collecting it with a ship and you'd have a big kind of array. This is either a submarine or diver-based, so it's yeah. a different scale. Yeah. Well, Matt, look, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. This is something that uh, I think everyone in the room is fascinated by and hopefully our listeners have enjoyed hearing about this and we'll be able to... I suppose find there's a website somewhere where they can find images of yep. this at this point. Yep, we um, we're kind of announcing the stuff as we go, so various yep. conferences and things like that. But it will all be put out uh, through the um, heritage divisions their website. So go have a look at the New South Wales Heritage Division, and they've got some amazing stuff. Fantastic! Thanks so much for chatting to us on Triple R. Thanks, folks. We're going to take a break for some important Triple R announcements, and we'll be back with our second guest for that in just a minute. Three Triple. Yeah, welcome back everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 R. In the studio with us now is Phoebe Lewis. She's from RMIT University. Phoebe, welcome. Thank you. Now, uh, you, uh, well, first of all, you're heading off to Casey Station in Antarctica in just three weeks, did you tell me? Yeah, about that, yes. About three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fantastic. So, 
let's get into your research and then we can talk about the trip. Sure. So you, you look at a variety of different birds. Yes. And how those birds tell us things about contamination levels and so forth yeah. in the Antarctic region. So first of all, why are you looking at different types of birds? Why don't you just pick one and focus on that one? Why is yeah. it important to look at different ones? That's a really interesting question. But, uh, yeah, there's different, different seabirds have different feeding ecologies mm-hmm. and they also behave in the environment differently. So for example, I study penguins, yep. uh, and they swim. They don't fly. Yeah. And they're also, they're really highly constrained in their foraging habitat. So they, okay. they swim a certain distance in a certain area. So they're going to be really good indicators of what's going on in the marine environment on a local scale. Mm. Whereas we've got migratory seabirds. Some of them are sort of do the whole world, like they go from the Arctic down to the Antarctic. So what they're showing is going to be really different where they might be picking up contamination compared to where the penguins are getting things. And and why are we using the birds to measure contamination? I mean, is, is it not easier to take you know, water or ice samples or yeah, why specifically the birds? So the chemicals I study are called persistent organic pollutants mm-hmm. and they are lipophilic, so they accumulate in the fat reserves of right. animals. Um, yeah, so, and birds are really good indicators of what's going on in the marine environment because they're sort of top order predators. So, yeah, and then if they've got a lot of chemicals um, sort of accumulated in their fat and they also yep. pass that down um, sort of generationally and because they're persistent, they don't go away. So they're actually really good indicators of right. what's happening. And and the, the timing of of how this is collected in the birds. I mean, how does that work in terms of, as you say, you've got migratory birds where yeah. they, they cycle around the earth or through parts of the earth. Mm-hmm. And so there must be, is there a sort of tree ring element to, to the way you get the data from these birds? I mean, presumably it would build up in cycles like seasons. Is yeah, that, is absolutely. That right? And um, so, uh, their molting stage, like when they molt. Right. So that could be a, and, but my chemicals uh, sort of move, they have different lives, like, uh, time periods that they're stuck in the body for and then different chemicals sort of get passed on directly to their offspring. Other chemicals might just accumulate in their liver. Mm. So it can be a snapshot of the... And also because seabirds are so long-lived, they're some of the longest... You know, there's birds down snow petrels that I think right. they found one that's 65 years old. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah, they they can they give us a really good snapshot of what's happening. Yeah, no, that, I mean that's fascinating how long they, they they live. Now I have to ask the collection of data from these birds. Are we talking poo samples, blood samples, saliva samples, feathers? We're talking all of it. All yeah. of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I'm trying to find the best. Uh, non-invasive biomonitoring technique. Yep. So you can imagine taking a blood sample is quite stressful for a bird. Yeah. So we're looking at uh, feathers, if they could be an indication, but we still need to take like poo samples and the preen oil as well. Um, they have this gland on the on the top of their tail, which, yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of... Um, different samples that we take at the does, moment. Does the poo sample involve you just standing out there with a really good suit on and waiting? <laughs> is, that, is that how you get a good poo sample? Yeah, from the absolutely. Because yeah. yep. <laughs> birds will do that. I show sampling photos and be like, yeah, this looks really technical, but I'm picking up poo with a, yeah. with a teaspoon. So. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I work in a, in, a par, in a department where a number of our researchers have gone down on waste remediation cleanup at Casey and McMurdo. Mm-hmm. And um, they have amazing stories of interacting with penguins and that... Um, they're actually quite accustomed to humans there. Like, you know, you have to stop work and let the penguins go by. If you're, you know, even if you're digging a big hole, you stop, let the penguins go by and they look at you. But 
interacting with them, I, I still think it would be quite imposing. They're not small. They're, no, they're uh, terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> terrifying. Yeah, and when you... So we sort of handle the birds when they're tied to their nest because um, they're protecting their egg, so they're easier to pick up. And then but there's other juvenile birds around that are just cruising around and then they see you pick up one of his mates and they'll all come and drum your legs with their flippers. So, Is that right? Yeah, Is that what they do? They, drop, they, they whack you with their flippers. Yeah. So they don't, go, they don't go the beak. They go the... The flippers, the yeah. The flippers. Yeah. And, and how how strong are they? They're pretty strong. <laughs> so, so yeah. yeah. But I'm wearing. I had to keep reminding myself that I've got all these layers of clothing on, and <laughs> if they do, you know, it's actually not going to hurt. But it's sort of like, oh, I'm really sorry. I'll put him down in a second. So. <laughs> and are the other bird species behave in a similar way? I mean, penguins, like you said, they don't fly, but snow. Um, petrels do. Mm-hmm. How do you go about catching those? Also when they're tied to the nest. Mm-hmm. So it's all about when they're breeding. So, um, mm. but it's, snow petrels actually live in these little awful rock caves. I found them incredibly annoying because they have all these little escape routes that you uh, can't see. So you sort of go in one way and you shut out, the, out the back and you're like, oh man. Like, so <laughs> if you manage to catch four mm-hmm. during a season, is that good or do you try yeah. to aim for a lot more than that? We aim for a lot more than that. So they have, um, I work with half at the Antarctic Division, so they have really good techniques and well-proven and, uh, you know, they've developed it over squilling years. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sort of cruising in at the end with all the glory. Yeah. <laughs> all these people work this out. So. Sounds like, uh, sounds like a good plan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, Phoebe, let's talk about the trip because you're, um, you're going down for three months. I, I think. think it'll be four. Four months. Yeah, in the end. I get back and, at the end of yeah. I mean, but you're going for the summer, so it's just cruisy, right? I mean, yeah. Antarctica is cru- I mean, could you just, have you been there before? Yes, I have. Yeah. So what is summer like? People talk about summer in Antarctica, and I figure that's something about, sounds like it should be about five times worse than the worst winter Melbourne would ever experience. Yeah, is that- absolutely. <laughs> it's super dry. Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, 24 hours daylight. Yep. Um, so it's really bright, which I just didn't even clue in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so mm-hmm. bright. And it, even to the, I, we've got special sunnies that we have to wear. Yep. And the first time I stepped out of the plane, I'm like, Oh God, I've forgotten my sunglasses. Right. But I right. actually had them on. Oh wow. It's that bright. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of, yeah. it's quite overwhelming. Cause if, if I went down some of that, it just really pissed me off. Cause I love astronomy and yeah. I'd want to see the night sky from Antarctica. Yeah. It would just be amazing. It is. Yeah. And, and yet, you know, if it's daylight the whole time, it'd be like, can someone please turn off the sun Absolutely. just for a few hours? I want to see the stars. Yeah. Um, and how do you go about um, sort of acclimatizing to that uh, that constant day? I mean, obviously you sleep inside in the dark, but yeah. but there is there is still a psychological effect of knowing that it's daylight. Oh, definitely. So, yeah. It took a while, and I always I don't know how to describe it, but it was like my eyes were too far open, and right. I always had to keep like, are you blinking regularly? So yeah. yeah, it was really interesting. But then at the end, sort of an old hat at it. It was cool. Yeah. So. Now, uh, have you seen the film The Thing? No. Well, you need to watch that. Um, it's, I think it's important. I always say this to people who go to Antarctica. You've yes. got to have watched The Thing, so, John Carpenter's version. I at do least believe um, the South Pole base, um, when after the last of the summers leave, all the people who are stuck there for the winter sit down and watch The Thing. Oh, see, that's gold. I mean, yeah. that's what it's all about. So having a number of colleagues that have gone down there, I have a question. Have you camped in the ice foxhole? The, the survival stuff? Yes. Like, yeah, we, yeah. we all have to do survival training. So, um, yeah, we dig. They just chuck you out. in. They fly you out on helicopter and leave you there. And then you've got to dig a <laughs> sort of a, I guess, a grave, I guess, like a yeah. size of one. And you have your bivy over the top and you sleep out in that. 
Is it okay if you eat one of your compatriots? Like Absolutely. It, yeah, I mean, that seems like <laughs> yeah. something that, you know, I've seen that film too. You know, like, you know, you just eat the butt, right? I mean, that's the, yeah, yeah. I think everyone's seen that film. Well, they actually, um, they have a chocolate box. So, and I'm a PhD student. So yep. that as soon as I discovered there's a chocolate box, I just, my pack was too heavy. So I was packing chocolate <laughs> everywhere. It's <so. laughs> fascinating. What, what's the, um, so what's the, you've been there before, so going back, I mean, what's the biggest challenge in going there? Is there a element of isolation or, I mean, because I don't think people realize these are like little cities now, Casey and McMurdo are, like there's quite a lot there compared yeah. to, you know, people probably have this sort of image of a few tents and a, you know, it's, yeah. it's not like that anymore. No, is it? it's sort of, uh, I would liken it most, I went to Davis two summers ago, yeah, so right. it's sort of, I guess, like a mining camp. Yeah. Not that I've yeah. been to one before, but in the height of summer, we had 90 people there. Right. But you really you know everyone you feel like mm. a family so mm. um yeah i think the the best the hardest thing to prepare for is making sure i have everything right just yeah. even like hankies and there's just nothing there if, yeah, if there, i don't no have stores. it yeah exactly yeah. so yeah. And, and, and what, what is you know what's the scenario there in terms of getting supplies if you need them like uh, is there is there like a, a sort of a not a general yeah. store but are there are there things that you can call upon as you need them yes the antarctic division they sort of have a they call it a woolworths right it's just um you know a selection of things that socks so <laughs> yeah, yeah. A random sewing kit or something, right, but they right. also have sort of like a chemist, so you've got Panadol and that sort yep. of thing as well. So they provide that sort of stuff. Yeah, so yeah, cool. Yeah. You guys are all focusing on the lollygagging, the Antarctic lollygagging, but I want to hear more about the science. So presumably <laughs> there are lots of different scientists that go down to Antarctica. What's the program there? Do you have to do a lot of presentations and hear about other people's stuff as well? Um, yes, sometimes they, they do encourage it. And everybody on station, I was just blown away. They are so interested. All the tradies, everybody just wants to hear about your project. And it's yeah. kind of really nice. Because there would be lots of people, I mean, um, biologists, you've got chemists, did you say? Going Chemical down? engineers. Chemical engineers. Yeah. I know that a lot of meteorologists, climate researchers go down there. What other types of science have you been exposed to last time? Uh... That's a really good loss. <laughs> loss yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was some really cool guys who were using, um, elephant seals to measure. They put, tra- they put these little duvalackies on their head that measure. Technical. Yeah, really technical. Um, cause the elephant seals come up to breathe air. Um, and then they dive down to these crazy depths and, it, and every time they come up, the little duvalacky pings the satellite and gives them sort of temperature, depth, all these wow. amazing yeah, yeah. profiles. And they're finding that out all around the Southern Ocean over winter. I was just like, Whoa, that's yeah, amazing. that's cool stuff. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the um the the scenario with all the traders in that there because I've actually heard that before from guests we've had on from doing research down there that there's such a good interaction between the the scientific community down there and the non scientific community. And Definitely, it seems like it's it's not something you would experience on a normal university campus or no. you know anywhere here in in sort of um you know non-Antarctic land, yeah. but down there it just seems like it's all one big big family of interaction. Definitely, they're so interested and because I, I flip and love my project and then all these guys <laughs> are like, that's so interesting, tell us more. I'm like, okay, and then we all get super excited and then even people want to help me sort of um, do sampling, like picking mm. up poo with a spoon. I'm like, guys, it's you're just picking dirt up with this spoon and putting it in foil. And they're like, yeah. yeah, awesome, I'm next, I want to do it next. Like, okay. <laughs> that's great. That's <laughs> yeah, it's really yeah. nice. So, so based on your last trip of sampling birds, um, 
What do you hope to get out of this one for sampling birds? Okay. Is it just another baseline or you no, well, yeah, want to so, look more? What, what else are you hoping for beyond a baseline? Yeah, absolutely. So my project focuses on the three stations, Davis, Mawson and Casey. So last time I covered the Davis and Mawson area. So we're trying to establish a baseline at Casey Station. And the thing that we're focusing on this season as well is um, looking for uh, plastic. So um, evidence of plastic exposure mm. to plastic birds. Presumably microplastic though, or are you going to be you know, everyone's seen those horrible photos of of um, marine birds with their stomachs cut open. Yeah. You're not going to be doing that level of experiment. No. no. So I'm using preen oil, um, and there's chem- chemicals in plastic called phthalates. So we have a look at their preen oil, and if if there's um, phthalates in the preen oil, then we assume that the bird has been exposed to plastic at some point. Mm. So. Phoebe, this is fascinating stuff. We, we'd like to task you with um, something that's basically, you have one of two options here. Okay. Either you become our Antarctic correspondent from Casey Station, or you find someone else at Casey Station <laughs> who will do it for us. Sure, um, <laughs> I can do that. Yeah, so it would be great to have a chat with you every now and then when you're down there oh, over, over the four months. It would be just fantastic to hear yeah, more cool. about your research, and, and maybe you can you know grab together a few of the other researchers down there to chat to us live yeah. as well. Um, I think not, there's some cool projects this year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, look, it sounds fantastic. Thanks so much for uh, responding to the call on Twitter too that I put okay. out during the week. It was great to, to discover these the, you and uh, amazing guests that um, you know otherwise we may not have come across. Um, good luck with the trip. You, you fly down there, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. yeah. The good old days of taking those Russian trawls are over, aren't they? I know. Well, I <laughs> sailed home, and that was two weeks oh, last wow. time. Um, yeah. So I'm. I'm Pretty yeah. keen about flying. Yeah, I can imagine there. you would yeah. be. Thanks so much for chatting to us, and we hope to talk to you again real soon. Yeah, cool. Thanks for having me. All right, you're listening to Einstein and GoGo, folks. We'll be back in just a few minutes with a little bit more news. Three. Triple. Dr. Ray, a little bit of uh, important news before we go. Dr. Shane, it was, a, it was a very exciting week. As many of you know, the Nobel Prizes in Medicine, Chemistry, and Physics were all awarded. Mm. Uh, I just wanted to highlight the, uh, the one in chemistry uh, because it was actually very interesting. It was for directed evolution of enzymes and proteins. Uh, and uh, it was given in two parts. One half of it went to uh, Francis Arnold, who uh, was really the person that pioneered using mutation to get, generate many, many different types of proteins and screen through whether or not they were useful and develop proteins and enzymes that were used for new ways to make pharmaceuticals and environmentally friendly ways to make industrial chemicals. Uh, and the other half was shared by George Smith and Gregory Winter, where they did more work in antibodies. And, and what I just think it's critical to point out to you as a physicist uh, <laughs> is that Francis Arnold is a chemical engineer from Caltech. And and it's just brilliant because this is just a, a great example of at the time when she started to do this to randomly generate many, many different protein variants, most people that want to understand proteins thought that didn't make sense at all. In fact, she's actually quoted as saying, she said people would tell her that's not science, and she responded, well, I'm an engineer. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and it's just they still don't know why proteins mutate this way. Hmm. They just look at, well, we've mutated this protein. Can it be useful? And it's just the complexity there is reflected in that. And the systematic approach of mutating things and screening them is really what's led to so many innovations out of that area. Mm. So I think that's pretty exciting. And, of, of course, it was a Nobel Prize for one woman and two men. And it's nice to see that diversity as well. In the yeah. Field. yeah. And, the, and the physics prize uh, was on laser physics, basically. Which it, it, is, uh, it, it was. The physics cool, prize, yeah. I was actually the one of them I was over the moon about. It was the oldest Nobel Prize winner, not for that, but it was for laser tweezers, which is using tweezers and, and the force of light to actually manipulate and move matter. Mm. And 
I think this is fantastic. I actually use a laser tweezer in my own lab. Yeah. To me, it's the closest you can have in real life to using the force. Yeah. Uh, and well, it uses the force. Yes. And, 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 and then the uh, other half of the Nobel Prize was for, um, pulsed lasers, which are the types of intense lasers that they yeah. use to do eye surgery. And, First woman to win a Nobel Prize in like 60 years. Yes, yeah. it's 1963. Yeah, a long time between long dreams. Time. Mm. Um, but yeah, I built a laser tweezing system when I was a, yeah. a, a you know a PhD student as well, and and it's an amazing concept that's really simple, but. The first person to think of it was you know, pretty good, but they're really effective tools that people use all the time. So, yeah, great. Yes. It's really good to see some of those things acknowledged. So good stuff. Anyway, we're going to have to uh, hand over to the team from Eat It in just a few moments, folks. So, uh, Dr. Linden, thank you very much for Thanks coming. Thanks for having me, Dr. Shane. Dr. Ray, great to see you again. It was fun, Dr. Shane. Uh, Lou's been doing our Twitter feed, and uh, I have to say a big thank you to our two guests today. Um, fabulous uh, discussions that we had there with them. Really interesting stuff. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. We're going to chat to you again about science next week. But until then, here's the team for me. Have a great Sunday. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.